Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Before we get to your regularly scheduled programming, we have a special announcement for you. We are wrapping up season three of What Went Wrong. This is the second to last episode. We really appreciate you guys listening. We've got an incredible final episode coming up featuring not one, but two of Hollywood's most canceled actors. (laughs) That's right. And in that final episode, We're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things that you can look forward to in the next season of What Went Wrong that is stronger, bigger, bolder than anything that you've put in your ears before. We got floppier big time floppers and ultra convoluted napkin math and some bonus content that I think you're going to be excited about. So please tune in for our season finale in two weeks of What Went Wrong. And And now, now, 50 Shades Shades Hello, and welcome back to another episode of What Went Wrong, your favorite podcast, full stop, that also happens to be about the production of movies, some of which are disasters, some of which are giant box office successes, and all of which invariably had many things go wrong behind the scenes. And here, as always, to illuminate such storied disasters is the one and only Lizzie Bassett. Lizzie, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. You know, I I can't wait to talk about the movie that we are learning more about today. Uh, As you all have seen from the title of this episode, it is the one and only Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Grey. Fifty Shades of Fucked Up. (laughs) Yep, that's what I was waiting for. A little bit of a fun twist, though. I'm not going to be the one telling us about Fifty Shades of Grey. One of my dear friends, actor and producer, Naomi Lind, is joining us. Naomi was my college roommate. She's one of my best friends. I love her so much. Um, She's currently a producer on a short film called Epinephrine. She has done the deep dive into the research, thank God, because I did not want to, and she's going to tell us all the -the behind-the-scenes details of this movie. Naomi, why did you do this to us? I watched this with David. Not good to watch with another person. It's really weird. (laughs) Oh, I saw this in theaters. (laughs) No. On opening weekend. And the reason was because I heard that Jamie Dornan and Dakota Johnson had no chemistry and hated each other on set, and I wanted to see what that looked like on film. But that is a a rumor that is very false. They got along very well. They're dear friends. And just going to, like, lay that out now. They don't hate each other. But I chose this because it's juicy, and why not? You know? I love films that are so bad they're good and this one is just 
I mean, you guys watched it. It's just pretty bad. (laughs) (laughs) So the film we are covering today is Fifty Shades of Grey, based on the best-selling novel by E.L. James. It was directed by Sam Taylor Johnson with screenplay by Kelly Marcel and score by Danny Elfman. It stars Dakota Johnson as Anastasia Steele and Jamie Dornan as Christian Grey. The plot is when college senior Anastasia Steele, Dakota Johnson, steps in for her sick roommate to interview prominent businessman Christian Grey, played by Jamie Dornan, for their campus paper, little does she realize the path her life will take. Christian, as enigmatic as he is rich and powerful, finds himself strangely drawn to Anna and she to him. Though sexually inexperienced, Anna plunges headlong into an affair and learns that Christian's true sexual proclivities push the boundaries of pain and pleasure. Even IMDb cannot boil this plot down. To I was going to say that makes there sense. is no story to this movie because <laughs> no. that was so long and nothing happened. Wait, so, Chris, this was your first time watching it, right? Yes, I uh, I watched it with my wife. We have a young baby. We don't have a lot of time to watch things, and we watched it together. Uh, a few things I want to get out of the way really quickly up front. Um, I think the movie is very well shot. It mm-hmm. looks great. I actually think it, as well as you could direct it, I think it's decently well directed. Um, We'll get to the script, I'm sure. I'll leave yeah. my comments. But I agree. It feels... I mean, I feel like Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan, just to provide enough takes where they're not laughing through the lines, is like human's work that they did on this movie. <laughs> um, and then two quotes I'll share from my wife. My wife turned to me at one point and said, this feels like it was made by someone who's just been told about sex, but has never <laughs> it. And... Um, <laughs> Then the second one was there was like a close up shot of Miss Johnson topless. And she was like, I wonder if that's Dakota's chest, real chest, implying like a body double. And then we just like cut wide to both of them nude for the rest of the movie. And so I will say like a lot of courage, especially she displayed in being so willing. And this, I believe, was her first like very big role. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I just want to make it clear I didn't really enjoy this movie. I have a lot of problems with it, but I can admire the gumption of the actors and their bravery and being nude. And then I also just thought from a craft perspective, a lot of departments did a great job from cinematography to production design. I I liked the costumes, et cetera. So I just wanted to get that out of the way before we flog the writing um, (laughs) relentlessly. Yeah. And there, I will say there are good reasons and we'll get into them of why the production design worked and the script did not (laughs) I guess my initial take from watching this is that I think Dakota Johnson is great and is actually somehow magically pulling this off. She's mm-hmm. yeah, she's always great. She's a really good actor. I actress. know, but like this is such a nightmare of a part and she really is charming and like easy to watch in it. Uh, and has to deliver some of the worst lines ever written, and she does it, and does it great. Jamie Dornan, who I I normally love, I think is just horribly miscast. Um, he he just looks very uncomfortable, and I I will say right out the gate, like he's a great actor. He's not good in this. Yeah, it's a rough go. The only other two things that I've seen him in have been when he's playing a Northern Irish 
character. And this is the first time mm-hmm. I've ever seen him play an American role. And man, is that dialect inconsistent. <laughs> so I think what Naomi's referring to is probably The Fall, which is great. If you mm-hmm. have not watched it, he plays a serial killer and he's awesome. And then the other would be Belfast. And he's really good, very charming in both, which is interesting because he is not charming in this. Um, nope. <laughs> and yeah, just seems really uncomfortable. So Naomi, take it away. Yes. So now that we've, you know, put our thoughts out on the film a little bit. Chris, since this is your first time watching it, and Lizzie already knows the answer to this question, did you notice any parallels to another film covered here on this podcast? Parallels to another film? In terms of the story? Mm-hmm. Yep. Have we watched anything this sexy or wanting to be? I'd say it has nothing to do with the sex. Yeah. Or lack of sex. Mm-hmm. I'm not going to guess this, but I'm disappointed in myself. Go, please. Well, the beginning of Fifty Shades of Grey began as Twilight fan fiction. Oh, yeah. Okay. I <laughs> vaguely remember hearing that at some point. So, Although I definitely yes. didn't pick up on it watching the movie. <laughs> it is a direct rip. It's the BDSM novel that took America's moms by storm, had humble beginnings as Twilight fan fiction, but with way, 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 way more sex. So it was written by Eric Leonard, um, who published under the name E.L. James. And from here on out, we're going to refer to her as E.L. James or by her last name, James. And at the time she wrote the fan fiction, she was just a middle-aged English woman who worked as a producer in television. And she lived a really simple life with her husband in London. And according to many interviews, just enjoys drinking wine and eating Nutella with a spoon. So that's E.L. James for you. That's definitely who wrote this. (laughs) So she posted her story, which was originally called Master of the Universe, to a Twilight fanfiction page under the surname Snow Queen's Ice Dragon. And the story depicts Isabella Bella Swan, later changed to Anastasia Steele, as a Bronte-loving virginal college student, and Edward Cullen, later changed to Christian Grey, as a mysterious high-powered CEO in Seattle that is very into BDSM. It gained popularity online, and James eventually decided to self-publish an ebook through a small Australian publisher. And her original story remained intact, but the names were changed due to copyright infringement. And mm-hmm. Anastasia Steele and Christian Grey became the sexy household names we know today. The title was changed to Fifty Shades of Grey, and the story was split up into three books, which is Fifty Shades of Grey, which is the mm-hmm. film we are covering, Fifty Shades Darker, and Fifty Shades Freed. After the first ebook was published, it went viral, and eventually the rights of the trilogy were picked up by Random House, and it became a top seller with millions of copies sold worldwide. And it caused a shortage of silver ink and paper in the UK due to demand. <laughs> My biggest regret was not reading the books before recording this. I really wanted to, and I just didn't get around to it because I really wanted to see what the differences were. <laughs> yeah, this was not a full movie. This was two thirds of a movie, and it ends. Right at the end of Act 2, which was very weird. But then I realized there were sequels because that was a little odd. Also, it makes sense that it was written by a Brit because I'm from Seattle. The geography of this movie is mind-boggling. I don't (laughs) understand where anyone is and why they're there and what's happening. And I had to do a lot of uh, just like double takes because at first it seems like she's at Washington State University, which is in eastern Washington, 
But then they're flying out of Portland. And then I did look online and it said that she was at the satellite branch in Vancouver of Washington State University, which is across the river from Portland. So why is he giving a commencement speech at the satellite branch of, let's be honest, (laughs) the second best state school in Washington (laughs) State, even though he's a billionaire? And wait, does he come from money or is he self-made? And I thought he was adopted at age four, but that's his brother and that's his sister. And then his mother was a crack prostitute i was very i had a lot of questions so i hope you can answer them i also had a lot of questions because i think there's so many details because they cut out so much dialogue yes i mean that was intentional but they cut out so much that i think like for someone who hasn't read the books there's some parts of it that it's like this isn't it's not as accessible as it could be and I think especially at the end, too. Well, so here's what I'm wondering. The, the big thing that is missing from this that I remember from the book, I think they downplayed slash cut out because it's, like, very problematic, which they kind of hint at. But, yes, he comes from an abusive past, like, very abusive. And it's heavily implied that that abusive um, childhood and then subsequently also the abuse that he succumbs to from an older woman, which is initially framed as sort of like a sexy thing, and it even is a bit later, which is weird, all is like the genesis of his interest in BDSM, which, you know, of course, like the BDSM community is like, no, no, there is no correlation between like, you know, abuse, trauma, and being interested in this. Like, it is a normal thing that a lot of people are interested in at different levels, And so my guess, and maybe Naomi can tell us, is that they pulled that back in the movie because it is heavily leaned on in the book. And you see in the movie, he has those little like pockmarks all over his chest. Those are like burn marks from the mother who would like, I think I could get this wrong, but I think she's like putting cigarettes out on him and stuff. There's like a lot of horrible childhood stuff that's discussed. Yeah. And in the film, it just kind of looks like he has like weird chest acne. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also very confusing if you did not read the book. And so, yes, so Lizzie is correct. The BDSM community was not thrilled with E.L. James's interpretation of BDSM. And they were also concerned that it was showing incorrect and possibly dangerous techniques. And Mm -hmm. they were right, because injuries related to BDSM and sex toy use spiked dramatically And emergency room visits increased by over 50% between 2010, the year before the book was published, and 2012. And that's specifically Mm BDSM-related ER visits. Yes. You know, the book was also, like, critically panned, which I think is also important to know for this franchise. It was a top seller, but Salman Rushdie, for some reason, read the book, and he said, I've never read anything so badly written that got published and made Twilight look like War and Peace. And Maureen Dow described the book in the New York Times as being written like a Bronte devoid of talent. So that's a little rough. Along with the book release, which was insane. It was just like the success that she had with this was just completely kind of unprecedented. And they started like trade making Fifty Shades products, which is also, which I didn't realize. So they oh, have, no. not with the intention of building an empire, but just like to stop other people from doing that. So... There were like 50 shades of great handcuffs, floggers, lubricant, lingerie, and 50 shades of great chardonnay. 
so fans can recreate Christian melting ice chips on Anastasia's body while pouring Chardonnay into her mouth. Ugh. Like, it's the most obvious sign that the book was written by a middle-aged white lady, because as far as I'm concerned, that's like white wine with an ice cube in it is like the staple drink of women over the age of 55. <laughs> so. Also, that was like the only time he actually let her drink the wine. I was watching the wine glasses the whole time, and they never drink it, except for that one time he like baby birds it back into her mouth. And I was like, ugh, this is not doing it for me. I think the interest in this has to do with, you know, BDSM was always this thing that people didn't really understand. It was something that was happening behind closed doors. But I think, like, secretly, there was probably a lot of normal people that had interest in it. And so regardless of how poorly written this was, it obviously struck a nerve in terms of middle-aged ladies being very interested in what this could be. Exactly. And I think, like, she was able to, like, bring a taboo subject and, like, have it become a little more normalized, even though... The way in which it was done was quite problematic at times. So after the release of the novel, a studio bidding war ensued for the rights of the Fifty Shades trilogy with Warner Brothers, Sony, Paramount, Universal, and allegedly Macky Mac Wahlberg's production company (laughs) submitting bid for the rights. He ended up with Father Stew. (laughs) (laughs) So Universal and Focus Features secured the rights to the trilogy in 2012, with Focus Features set to market and distribute the film in partnership with Universal. And James then selected the social network producers Michael DeLuca and Dana Brunetti to produce the film. So Hmm. why do you think Universal and Focus Features won the bid? over all these others. I have a guess. And quickly, Michael DeLuca, also former New Line Wonderkin executive, listened to our episodes on Town and Country and Island of Dr. Moreau for more about Mr. DeLuca, who's still very active. My guess is they gave her a weird amount of creative involvement in the process because as I watched this, I was like, so much of it didn't make sense in a way where I felt like it was actually being very accurate to the book. And I was like, no filmmaker, you know, would would just or screenwriter would keep these details. They would have simplified the story. It would, you know, she's just make her an intern at his company. Just make it more or just make her go to a university that's in Seattle. Like there are so many things that you can do to just simplify your first act. So my guess is that she was given uh, way more control than would be normal for an author. Correct. And the other thing is the prestige that Focus Features has. And, you know, so the deal and so much of the Fifty Shades franchise and, like, include, like, the books, the products, everything, it's not about the money for her. It's making the fans happy. Mm. And, And this deal wasn't just about the money because they gave her almost, like, complete creative control over, you know, She's a director, casting, the screenplay, wardrobe selection, and it's... crazy. Yeah. That explains all the cap sleeves. Some really bad, like, sweater shirt choices made in this. And really quickly, in Twilight, Stephanie Meyer was not given that level of... She was... I mean, she had, like, a cameo, but to be clear, like, Twilight, also super popular, not very well received critically, but she was not given that level of involvement or creative control in comparison. No. no. And and part of the, I think the reason why Stephanie Meyer wasn't given that control because she was a first-time writer, which is what made this like even more unprecedented because this is also E.L. James's first novel too. So it's just right. wild. But 
she is riding on Stephanie Meyer's coattails to a certain degree because the Twilight film franchise has also launched at this point and has and, been a right. massive yeah. success. Exactly. So, so the precedent was set and now she can build on it. Yeah. Lizzie, let me ask you something. You've got a moderately successful podcast that requires you to watch a boatload of movies, right? Yep. Okay, so how do you find time to cook healthy, affordable meals? I don't. I've been eating delicious, ready-to-eat meals from Factor. They're chef-crafted, dietitian approved and delivered right to my door. Okay, but do they have snacks and smoothies, the only two things that my daughter currently eats? Uh, they sure do. There are over 35 different options every week to choose from, including keto, calorie-smart, veggie, and vegan for you and your vegan child. And the best part is, when you sign up, you save money because Factor is less expensive than takeout. The napkin math checks out. I actually did it. Factor gets you a two-minute, restaurant-quality meal on the table with no prep and no mess. Until my daughter throws it on my face. It's flexible for any schedule. Choose between 6 to 18 meals per week, and you can pause or reschedule anytime. So head to factormeals.com slash www50 and use code www50 to get 50% off. www50 at factormeals.com slash www50 to get 50% off. So, spoiler alert, much of... Hashtag what went wrong throughout production was due to E.L. James having the final word over everything, but we'll have more time to go into detail over this. So once the rights were secured with Universal and the deal was done, the producers were brought on, they began a search for the screenwriter and director, and they eventually hired Kelly Marcel to write the screenplay. Her only other feature-length screenwriting credit at the time was Saving Mr. Banks, but the producers and James liked that she had a fresh take on the story. Hmm. And for director, they were initially considering Joe Wright, who directed Pride Mm. and Prejudice and Atonement in Karenina, but was unavailable due to a scheduling conflict. And then other prestige directors under consideration included Patty Jenkins, Bill Condon, Bennett Miller, Steven Soderbergh, Danish director Suzanne Beer, and Gus Van Zandt. Oh my God. Bennett Miller, the director of Capote and Moneyball, directing this. That would have been amazing. Would have been a very different film. Patty Jenkins could have been really good. Although I, yeah. I like Sam Taylor Johnson a lot, who did direct this, but yeah. Sam Taylor Johnson was announced as the director in 2013. And Taylor Johnson was an accomplished fine art photographer turned filmmaker. And she made her first feature film directing debut in 2009 with Nowhere Boy, which grew mm-hmm. drew critical acclaim and was nominated for several BAFTAs. And Fifty Shades of Grey was the second feature film she would direct with nearly 40 times the budget of her first. This is her and second movie? Second feature. Yeah. Oh, and she no. had a gap. She that. had a, like three or four years in between Nowhere Boy and Fifty Shades because she yeah. took time off to raise her family. And just to draw another parallel to Twilight, this is the second time a hotly anticipated blockbuster adaptation was going to be directed by a female director with indie clout, but no mm-hmm. big studio experience. Yeah. So given what you guys know about the budget Hard was given for Twilight, what do you think the budget was for Fifty Shades? I mean, watching this movie, I felt like it, it was... looks expensive. Yeah, like an $80 million movie, just with all the locations they were flying to and whatnot. But I have no idea. I, yeah, I don't know either. I, I My guess is that they, she got more money than Catherine Hardwick. Because if you all haven't listened yet to our episode on Twilight, Catherine Hardwick got totally screwed. Yep. So she got more money than Catherine Hardwick, but she still had a pretty modest budget to work with. Uh, it was $40 million. Whoa. Although, to be clear, I want to jump in really quick. My guess is that 
neither Dakota Johnson nor Jamie Dornan were paid very much for this first movie. And so she actually probably had a lot of that 40 million to actually put on the screen. Whereas if you look at, you know, a movie that has Charlize Theron or Jennifer Lawrence or something like that in it now, they might take a 10, 15, $20 million paycheck right at the top, which these young actors were not getting at this point in time. That's true. And there's no major names in this. I mean, there's like Luke Grimes, who obviously later will be in Yellowstone, but at this point is not. Marsha K. Harden and Jennifer Ely, who I also really like. Yes. uh, Oh, yeah. Elizabeth Elizabeth Bennett and the original Pride and Prejudice. It's great. And yeah, I think the credit that I can give to Sam Taylor Johnson, too, is that like this film did not go over budget. Spoiler alert. And it looks great. She made, it It looks expensive. Yeah, it looks expensive. And she comes from, you know, the fine Mm -hmm. art photography world. So, you know, she knows how to tell a story through pictures. So the problematic signs of E.L. James' influence began once Kelly Marcel began writing a screenplay. And Marcel's plan was to play with the timeline of the original story and had Mm. some other creative decisions like taking out Anna's inner monologue that were in the book. Um, And these ideas were really well-received at first, both by James and the producers. Kelly Marcel also said, I felt it could be a really sexy film if there wasn't so much talking, which Mm -hmm. I agree with that. Sure could. (laughs) Um, But ultimately, James vetoed her choices every step of the way telling Marcel, this isn't what I want it to be, and I don't think this is the film the fans are looking for. And it's reported that James removed all of the edits until the screenplay was to her liking, and that James would not allow herself to be rewritten, even if it's an and or a but. So there are certain lines in the script that just had to be exactly like they were in the book. She would not brook changes. You're not Tom Stoppard, lady. I mean, I feel bad for the screenwriter. That would be really, really hard. Yeah, Yeah, and she was really deflated by the experience, and she still hasn't seen the film because it would just be too painful for her to watch it and see how different it is to what she actually wrote. And they hired Patrick Marber, which was a choice by Taylor Johnson. He was brought in to polish the script and rework the dialogue. He's of Notes on a Scandal and Closer fame. He would be great at, like, Closer, a lot of great sexual subtext, very charged. Mm -hmm. Notes Notes on a a Scandal, scandal, too. Great sexual subtext yeah between judy dench and kate blanchett in that movie so and her and the kid yeah that's the guy you want to come in and try to give it a little reading between the lines you know in into the a very upfront story exactly so the producers and the director and the lead actors they were all really happy with what he'd written but james fired him (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) allegedly it's because he strayed too far from the book and changed too much dialogue when Marber was interviewed about oh, his he firing, he said, I felt a bit sad because I thought I'd written a good script, but I totally understood. If you take a rewrite job, it's whore's money and don't expect them to love you for being a whore. Whoa! <laughs> it's a great quote, and he's right. <laughs> he's Whoa. absolutely right. So they have a script. Um, now we're going to get to casting. So... Like any franchise with a devoted fan base, casting for Fifty Shades was going to be a topic of hot goss and fan forums and listicles alike. And casting went underway with some big names in the mix. So any guesses on who was offered the role of Anastasia Steele? Anastasia. Um, I mean, did they do something stupid and offer it to Kristen Stewart? I was just going to (laughs) ask. They did not. Okay. All right. Um, (laughs) When did this movie come out? I know I should know that. It came out in 2015. Okay. I have a really weird guess. No, she'd probably be too young. I don't know. What? Emma Watson? She was she was considered. She was not offered the role, but she was okay. considered. 
Okay. And she had like tweeted her displeasure saying, who here actually thinks I would do a Fifty Shades of Grey as a movie? Like really for real in real life. That was her tweet. <laughs> I wouldn't think Good she would want the she role. Did, that's yeah, how I seen she would it. turn it down. All right, Liz, you guess and then fill us in. I'm not going to get it. Naomi, tell us. Amelia Clark was offered the role from Game of Thrones. Oh. She played Daenerys Targaryen. Which, oh, the Game of Thrones was already happening at that yeah. point. Yeah, yeah. I got yeah. it. Got and it was, oh, really? I think she was already like three at this point. I think she was already like three years into the series. And so she was offered yeah, she the was role, but ticket. declined over the required nudity. But she, you know, still praised Sam Taylor Johnson and her vision. Um, mm-hmm. And then others under consideration were Alicia Vikander. Oh. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yep. Felicity Jones, Shailene also, Woodley. Yeah. Uh, yeah. These are all good. Yeah, all good. I, Elizabeth, I, I, Elizabeth Olsen. Yeah. She would have been really young. Yeah. I think I would go with uh, Dakota Johnson, though. Like, I just yeah. thought, I think they nailed that role. Like, yeah, as I much agree. as you could. I thought she was excellent. So. She's watchable. Like, she's more than watchable, which, given the dialogue in this, is amazing. Yeah. And she auditioned really early, and she was, like, the clear front runner. And then they ended up having to, even though like she was the top choice, they still ended up auditioning like a few hundred other actors to make sure. But she was the clear front runner. We should mention really quickly, Dakota Johnson, for those of you that don't know, is the granddaughter of Tippi Hedren and the daughter of Melanie Griffith. Listen to our episodes on The Birds and Bonfire of the Vanities. And Roar! To learn how three generations of women have been traumatized by... Bad movies in Hollywood. (laughs) In terms of her timeline, I think she had done The Social Network. She's in one Mm -hmm. scene in that, which makes sense because there's a producer um, correlation here. And had she done, like, like one other There was one. I can't remember what it was, but there was one other film that she had done. Okay, but so this is, like, definitely her first big leading role, Yeah, she's still, like, relatively... New. Unknown, yeah. Okay. And casting Chris, so casting Anastasia seemed to, was much easier than casting Christian, which was challenging because actors just fl- flat out just didn't want to take the role for a couple of reasons. Uh, one, the amount of nudity in sexual situations. And two, just many couldn't connect with the character or the material. So want to take a wild guess on who E.L. James' top pick was for Christian? Is it Alexander Skarsgård? Because that probably would have been mine. No. No. I mean he was he wasn't he was in consideration, so you're not wrong. But am I guessing her, am I guessing who I'd want to have flog me? Or am I guessing yes. like what are we going with here? <laughs> I would say remember when you guessed Kristen Stewart? Oh really? Robert Pattinson? Yep. No. Interesting. I mean he was, wow, a I don't similar watch character that. to who he plays in Megalopolis. It was just not, I mean, like he was like right off of Twilight, so it was never really gonna work. And I think like in the end of the day, like they wanted to cast unknown, relatively unknown actors in both of these roles. But um, the other actors under consideration were Ryan Gosling, which is what Universal wanted, but he was not interested in the role. Theo James, Garrett Hedlund, but he could not connect with the character. And Charlie Hunnam, who starred in Sons of Anarchy at the time, and initially turned down the role for the same reason, that he couldn't connect with the character, but was convinced in a meeting with Taylor Johnson and the producers to reconsider the offer. And they did a chemistry test with Hahnemann Dakota Johnson, and he decided to take the role immediately after reading with her. 
And this was also the point where Sam Taylor Johnson brought on Patrick Marber to rework parts of the script and incorporate Hunnam's ideas for the character of Christian, because otherwise he wasn't going to do it without that rewrite, I don't think. I'm not going to lie. I kind of want to see that version of this movie. No. I love... Lizzie, what? the best version of this movie, absolutely, Ryan Gosling would be awesome. Sure, but like... Sense of humor and really I like really Charlie weird. Hunnam. Like... I like no, Charlie Hunnam would be great. They would all be very good, obviously. I just like the Ryan Gosling against type. It's like what he did for Drive, basically, instead. Like that would have been that would have been great. I think I'm still team Charlie Hunnam. There's something about him that's scary, which I feel like you get in Sons of Anarchy. And that's something that I do think you need in this, which I love Jamie Dornan. It's not there like yeah there's there's sort of there's a lack of edge to him which is weird in seen in only this god part. forgives ryan gosling's crazy in that movie all right chris loves ryan gosling i think he's and great. like him to <laughs> flog him that's what i've learned i'm going with charlie hunnam <laughs> all right let's keep going yeah and so charlie hunnam was cast and fans were pissed because what? they were have they seen his butt it's great because he didn't physically resemble the Christian they knew in the books. And... Very hot. Yeah, It's, it's the so- Daniel Craig, James Bond thing over again, right? Yeah. He's he's blonde. Oh, my God. And, and yeah, he just... I don't think he looks like a leading man in the same way that, say, like, Jamie Dornan does. And, Disagree. Or, like, that, like, Ryan Gosling does. And... Hunnam was apparently, like, really overwhelmed with the amount of attention he was receiving after being cast and started to get cold feet about carrying such a high-profile project. And Universal was even forced to hire bodyguards to accompany him at premieres um, just because Fifty Shades was just, like, dominating the red carpet for him. And he didn't have any reservations about the role of Christian, but the media and fan frenzy just, like, freaked him out a bit is what it seems like and he ended up leaving the project three weeks before production was set to begin wow yep so you know production had to pivot really quickly (laughs) that's crazy quickly that's nuts crazy quickly they they turned it around immediately and they did more chemistry weeds with actors that had been considered uh for christian including alexander skarsgård lizzie and yeah, Jamie Dor- and Jamie Dornan, who, as we know, is an actor from Northern Ireland and was relatively unknown in the States, but was gaining traction after a BAFTA nomination for his role as a serial killer in the BBC drama The Fall. And Dornan, as we know, got the role. And Dornan said in an interview recently, Charlie Hunnam got it, and I was relieved. I was like, fuck, that's great. What a fucking nightmare for that guy, because he's going to have all this scrutiny... <laughs> And before anyone's heard him do anything, he's going to be really hated. And so many people will rage against the casting of it alone. But then Charlie Hunnam dropped out and Jamie Dornan filled in and also felt the wrath of all yeah. of that hatred. <laughs> I He is extremely, um, he's very funny and very charming in person. He's one of the actors that uh, when I was working for IMDb, he came into our studio one of the years at the Toronto Film Festival and Usually, the experience I had was, to be honest, underwhelming, seeing people in person and sort of seeing them interact unedited. Not the case with him. He was so funny, so smart, so quick, um, honestly, significantly more charming in person than he is on screen, I would say. 
Um, and I also just like love watching interviews with him and Dakota Johnson. They're so, they're both so dry and so funny. Yeah. So filming was originally set to begin in Vancouver on November 5th, 2013. But due to the exit of their first lead actor, they pushed to November 13th, but then was again delayed and principal photography didn't begin until December 1st. And they had an intended release date of August 2014. And at that point, they were about a month behind schedule. So they pushed the release to February 13th, 2015 in time for Valentine's Day. So the set was tightly under wraps and essentially on lockdown. They changed street names, so they matched street names in Seattle, which is also, you know, not uncommon if you're filming in Vancouver. And the film was shot under the working title The Adventures of Max and Banks for some reason. Okay. And there were some members on the production that said they had never worked on a film under so much secrecy. It sounds like after their month delay, production was running on time and aspects of the film itself were running pretty smoothly. But there was one major problem, and it's that E.L. James came to set every day and had the final say on everything. And this caused tension between her and Sam Taylor Johnson, and they were just in near constant conflict over the direction of the film and minute decisions on set. And like Marcel, Taylor Johnson was hired because of her vision of the film, but she was met with constant resistance from James. It's interesting because this does feel like two movies. Like, there's the dialogue, which is mm -hmm. so rough in many places and does match the book exactly. And then there are some scenes, like I was talking to Chris about this earlier, there are some scenes that are genuinely funny and they're like there's a totally different vibe to them and there's like weird Danny Elfman music who, who did score this but all of a sudden it's like kind of gets a little Tim Burtony in places um and it does it feels like you can see the fight like you can see the fight between mm-hmm. the director and EL James and there are moments that like there like I love when he he pulls her pants down and you can see that she has like hair on her legs that like that's backlit and you can see that sort of stuff that feels very real and and sort of soft and like not polished and then there's so many other moments that are like the polar opposite of that it's really mm-hmm. weird and just to emphasize how unusual this is so there have been many stories on this podcast about embattled directors dealing with studio notes blade runner comes to mind cuz we recently covered it this though At least if you get a note from a studio, at least at the end of the day, you can tell yourself whether you hate it or not. Well, they're paying for it or and or, well, maybe they have a point because they've made a lot of movies or this executive (laughs) producer, this producer's done this before. But to get those notes, sorry, from the very successful but probably hack author who has written these books, who has not made a movie before... And who's not a successful fine art photographer or indie filmmaker, that must have just, I mean, honestly, I I think I would have quit. Like, I would have walked right behind Charlie Hunnam (laughs) at the door. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of people, like, asked Sam Taylor Johnson, like, why she didn't quit. And she's She's, like, I wasn't, I wasn't going to leave. That's great. Good for her. Yeah, good for her. And she was able, they were still, like, able to, you know, resolve enough. And luckily, you know, Donna Langley, who's the chairwoman at Universal, another older British woman, Mm -hmm. um, did her best to really help 
Sam Taylor Johnson and was like the only person that had weight with E.L. James and able to influence her on decisions. So that was really helpful to have her on that side. But the production team like basically like had two masters and it was Mm -hmm. Sam Taylor Johnson and E.L. James. And James just had her fingers in every pot she could. And, you know, she demanded that like you know, some of Anna's dresses remain the same colors as they are in the books, like the gray chiffon dress and in the graduation scene and that tight-fitting wine-colored dress in the negotiation scene because E.L. James just loves wine, okay? I got news for E.L. James. <laughs> some of those dress choices are very questionable. Dakota Johnson is so yeah. beautiful, and some of the clothes they put her in, like when the driver buys her clothes and she's like, he has good taste. No, he doesn't. No, he does not. It looks like he got it at Dillard's. Like, some of that stuff is rough as hell, and you know it was expensive. And I know it was you, E.L. James. <laughs> yep. And and she would also send the costume designer a detailed email regarding, like, the color and fit of the jeans Christian wears in the playroom, which, which are I know— Which are so embarrassing. <laughs> Lizzie has very strong opinions about these jeans. They're so bad, dude. They're so bad. And I know that, like, it's exactly as they're written in the book. So, like, they did that. But I don't need to see this grown man in, like, low-rise, ripped jeans. No. It's bad. It's so bad. It's so Why bad. Why does he put and, those pants you know, on? And the designer and Sam Taylor Johnson had this, like, great conceived idea for Christian's clothes to changed throughout the film, kind of, like, tracking the way he becomes more open and, like, loving towards Anastasia. And it was going to go from, like, a double-breasted suit in one scene and, like, the first scene you see him and then, like, peeling away and softening textures as the story goes on. But E.L. James just came down and said double-breasted suits weren't sexy, so they had to scrap it. (laughs) (laughs) You know, the designers have said that, like, they respected E.L. James's opinion and took her suggestions and, like, you know, took them seriously because she is the author of the books and, like, this does have a strong fan base, but they also, like, discussed her notes with Sam Taylor Johnson before putting them into the film, too. So they were, I think, did a really good job of marrying both of their inputs. And also, even though E.L. James had no design experience, she also drew up designs for Christian's playroom, also is, like, referred to as the Red Room, um, which she gave to the production designers, as well as a detailed floor plan (laughs) of Christian's home so that every detail remained as true to the books as possible. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to surprise myself here for a second and come to EL James's defense just for a hot second. People did not love these books because they were well written. They're horribly written. Like we know that. I think EL James probably knows that. Mm-hmm. So what you said earlier in terms of like she is trying to protect the fan experience, I can I I don't think she's a total monster. Like, she knows that what she wrote was very successful for a reason and that mm-hmm. aesthetics were a big part of that, as embarrassing as they are. And I don't know that this... I mean, I'm sure part of this could be a power trip, but I would like to give her some benefit of the doubt in thinking that she is trying to as closely replicate the fan experience as she can. So yeah. yeah. And and I, I agree with that, Lizzie. I really do. I don't. I think that's <laughs> dumb. Sorry. I mean, it doesn't, I I mean, it didn't help it make a I'm good not film, saying but I think yeah, that it is. Exactly. At the end of the yeah. day, the book is the book, and it's not a visual medium. 
And but so, I don't know if that's true for this fan base. I, I honestly I don't, don't. I don't care about the fan base. Person, I'm just saying <laughs> I personally. Know. I care if the movie's good because I'm the, yeah. not the fan base. I'm just the other viewer that they're trying to Yeah, capture. but you didn't buy a ticket. My point is this. You need a balance of both. And the problem is if she has carte blanche, then all you're doing is catering to the existing audience. And I think that is not the smart thing to do. I also just care about Sam. I care about the director. I care about Sam I Taylor Johnson. I don't care about E.L. James. I think she's wrong. <laughs> I, I mean, think I also... a bad person for defending her, Lizzie. <laughs> Whatever. I mean, we, she's kidding. not a good writer. <laughs> so when it came to the playroom slash red room, which is like the most important setting in the film, I would say, because it visually had to drive the story forward the minute they stepped inside, this but is it another doesn't. thing. It's not even scary. She walks in and it's just like a couple of handcuffs and then some like cleaning product. I, I don't even know what they are. The floggers? Like, what is yeah. that? It's, yeah. No, so that's what it's you a bed. people with. <laughs> I know, but it just looks like rags. Like, it's not, there's nothing like spiky. I don't see any butt plugs. Like, I don't, it, you know, he has all this contractual, first of all, so much paperwork in this movie. It is so, so all paperwork. Well, so little. They talk about it a lot. But they you don't talk see about a lot that contract. 90% of this movie is talking about that contract and her signing non-disclosure agreements. They're talking about genital clamps, butt plugs, like fisting. Let me see the genital clamps. Open a drawer of the clamps and the plugs. <laughs> Speaking of drawers, the issue that E.L. Oh, no. James had with the Red Room was that they walk in and everything is on display, but in the books, everything is in drawers. And Anastasia opens all of the drawers and discovers <sighs> all of the toys and the whips and the floggers. And luckily, this was a battle that Sam Taylor Johnson and the designers won because can you imagine how goddamn boring that scene would have been <laughs> also how long it would take to shoot okay let's set up for the next insert shot of a drawer right? she pulls it open <laughs> great this is what oh it's a flogger that being said it's another flogger i do want a drawer full of plugs yeah the pacing is already an issue in the film i think and it just yes. we got to them having sex and i was like that must be the midpoint <laughs> i clicked and i was like oh my god i have an hour and a half left in this oh movie. yeah it's not done <laughs> so a substantial creative clash that sam taylor johnson and eel James had was over the sex scenes and the sex scenes in the film comprise a fifth of the film from a runtime perspective from a yeah mean. from a runtime perspective wow yeah. and do you know if that's comparable to the book like Lizzie is that a, is that roughly how much the book is I in think terms there's of sex more scenes? in the book yeah they they cut a lot of sex scenes got it the book is graphic like she's not dancing around this stuff it, it is it is pretty graphic yeah, and, like, fans were apparently really like, pissed that they, like, cut out certain scenes. And James thought that the sex scenes should be more pronounced and explicit, and Taylor Johnson wanted to take a more subtle approach. And, you know, she had watched films like Nine and a Half Weeks and mm -hmm. Blue is mm -hmm. the Warmest Color for inspiration. Mm -hmm. And she knew for a studio film that the sex couldn't be as graphic as Blue is the Warmest Color, but she still felt that, like, the sex didn't need to be graphic and that, you know, for her, the most erotic part is the buildup to that. So that's where most of her focus was. And I think they, I think she was able to accomplish that. I think it was kind of a marriage of both, but I think that the way that the sex scenes were shot, I mean. I think, I think you have to go one way or the other. Yeah. And because they kind of split the difference, it's a bit strange like honestly the like cuz the writing is so not good 
that by the time you get to the first sex scene, I was like, show me everything. I'm <laughs> I'm in for like however <laughs> raunchy this is going to get. And then it's they're shot very like high art. And I was like, ah, this, it almost makes me like more uncomfortable. <laughs> It was, yeah, I thought they were done very artistically. Yeah, I they're thought super that well they shot. showed actually a good amount of sensitivity to the actors. And it's interesting because it's in stark contrast to Blue is the Warmest Color, which my understanding is that director, those actresses were deeply uncomfortable with that experience. Mm-hmm. And that yes. director uh, didn't really show any remorse for the methods that he used and how exposed that they felt in making it. That being said, the on-screen result, like Blue is the Warmest Color, that film, you kind of feel the, I would argue, like love and desire between the two characters very strongly. Whereas I I, I just didn't in this movie at all. It felt, um, and that's also maybe part of the issue with BDSM. It's about control and it's not prone to displays of passion. Right. It's it's control and pain, et cetera. And anybody should do whatever they want as long as it's safe and consensual. But anyway, it didn't it just kind of left me cold, I guess. Yeah, I agree. It, it just yeah. it didn't quite it didn't quite click. I mean, I feel like if they had gone in the direction that Sam Taylor Johnson was trying to take the rest of the movie, those might have worked in context. They don't quite work the mm-hmm. the way that it is now. And also I think part of it too is like they this is before the time that intimacy coordinators were on set, yeah. too. I was going to ask. And I can't, I just can't imagine. It's like watching this in 2022, I can't fathom that they made this film and all three films about intimacy coordinators. No. Um, Yikes. But, you know, I think in terms of like the actor's safety, I think like they did handle it as best as they could, which to give them credit and like they discussed everything in great detail beforehand. They worked with a BDSM advisor to make sure the sex scenes in the playroom were done safely, even though apparently Jamie Dornan was like very bad with the whip and like not very good. (laughs) They also had a, you know, they had a closed set for all the sex scenes and the cinematographer, and this is part of the reason why the sex scenes seem like they're done in this like very artful manner and kind of like removed in a way. And it's because the cinematographer set the cameras far away to give the actors space to avoid Mm. having a hairy camera guy standing over them and zoomed in for the shots. And they used two cameras so the actors didn't have to do a ton of takes. So they were like as respectful as I think they could have been at the time. And Jamie Dornan was also very protective of Dakota Johnson and, you know, was the first person to throw a blanket over her, like untie her between takes. And... The actors also wore modesty coverings. Was there a Merkin involved in this? No. We're going to get to that. So there's no Merkin involved, but they have modesty coverings. And Jamie Jordan referred to his as uh, his like penis covering as a wee bag. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Which he got to select from like a few options that they like the wardrobe gave him. And he opted for the one he liked. Then noticed, I think like after he'd worn it, that on the inside it read inmate number three. (laughs) Meaning that he was not the first person to wear yeah, that wee bag. Oh, and yeah. Dakota Johnson had like a patch that went over her pubic area and like around her whole body. So this meant that the coverings had to be hidden and more natural bodily details had to be added back in while editing those scenes. So what do you think that means, friends? Does that mean it's a digital Merkin? Yes. <laughs> what? Yeah, the pubic hair was added in post. Interesting. And, what? Yeah. <laughs> the cinematographer, who has been 
Oscar nominated, because he was the cinematographer for Atonement and Anna Karenina, Mm -hmm. said, I wouldn't say it was one of the highlights of my career, but it certainly was one of the most surreal scenarios. Wow. That Mm -hmm. is wild. Yeah. For anyone that doesn't know what a Merkin is. A Merkin is a wig for your private parts. (laughs) Um, that's crazy. I think that's our first CGI Merkin on on what went wrong. Yeah. First that you know of. First but. that we know of, but there it is, friends. <laughs> the cinematographer is also responsible for having to cast a non-tattooed butt double for Dakota Johnson for one of the close-up shots, too, because she has a tattoo on her ass. So they were like, we'll CGI in the Merkin, but we're not going to CGI out the butt tattoo. <laughs> exactly. It made no All right. sense. Okay. <laughs> it's like, where are your priorities? And then perhaps the biggest clash between E.L. James and Sam Taylor Johnson had to do with a very pivotal moment at the end of the film. And it's the scene that takes place after the final Red Room scene where Anastasia asks Christian to punish her to see how bad it can be. And mm. he whips her six times the belt and she recoils and leaves. And in this last moment, Taylor Johnson wanted to end with Anastasia saying the safe word red mm-hmm. instead of James's more obvious line, stop, as was, I think, written in the book. Yeah, they established the safe words and then they And then they, they, they don't use them. Off. Yeah. Right. Right. And James adamantly refused and Taylor Johnson's maybe smarter ending did not make the final cut. Do you guys think that it would have made a difference to the end, like a significant difference had it been the other line? Yes, because at least it implies that she's playing by the rules of the game. Mm-hmm. Yes, if you're still engaged with the movie at that point. So I would argue, like, yes, yeah. for the, I actually think it would be better if you were into, you know, if you if trying to show uh, BDSM in the right light. That's what I mean. I will say I would not have noticed by that point in watching the movie. But I think that Sam Taylor Johnson absolutely has the right perspective and as a director she's like this is consistent with the character and it's more interesting for the story and that's the right decision Mm -hmm. i completely agree with her in some ways to me that implies the possibility of a continuation more than stop does because yeah stop if anything says like the game's over we're that's what i mean that's what i mean she's exiting the game versus red she's still within the Mm -hmm. the rules um and even though you're ending the movie in a weird place where she's she's leaving if she had said red i do think there's a difference there So back to the onset tension and the script, Dakota Johnson has finally been speaking candidly for the first time about her experience on set in this Vanity Fair article. And she said that she and Sam Taylor Johnson and Dornan, Jamie Dornan, had tried to salvage some of Patrick Marber's script during filming and that they would do takes of the movie that Erica wanted to make, meaning E.L. James. And then we would do the takes of the movie that we wanted to make. And she said, like, the night before, she would rewrite scenes of the old dialogue so she could add in a line here and there. And it was, like, mayhem all the time. And there is one Patrick Marber scene that made it into the film. Any guess which one it is? Is it the contract? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's because that, that scene is funny. It's the best and scene in the film. Yes, it is. It's great Hands when they're down. sitting down with the wine at the table going over the contract. It's a totally different movie, and it's the movie I would watch 100%. Yeah, it's funny. There's The pacing is great. It clips along. Well, it also feels like she has a personality for the first time, other yeah. than like, and he does. are you going to make love to me now? But like she, 
She's very assertive. She's mm-hmm. funny. She knows what she wants, what she doesn't want. Like, it's a little quippy between the two of them. It actually seems yeah. like Jamie Dornan's having a good time for the yes. first time in the whole movie. Yeah. The only time. Uh, when he's, you know, are you sure? Are you really sure about that? Like, you know, that stuff mm-hmm. is... He, yeah, I agree. And Sam Taylor Johnson has been, you know, pretty candid about her experience on set from the beginning, too. And... She said, it was difficult, I'm not going to lie, we definitely fought, but they were creative fights and we would resolve them. We would have proper onset Barneys, as she called them, and that she's not confrontational, but it was about finding a way between the two of them, satisfying her vision of what she'd written, as well as Taylor Johnson's need to visualize the person on screen. But they finally got there in the end. And sources on set also said that, you know, E.L. James is just not experienced. And like, Chris, like what you were saying, like she was given a lot of power, but had never been through a movie shoot and just like did not, she never grasped that in all adaptations, some things need to change and you just can't put the book on screen. But Mm -hmm. she just fought every, every way to do that. We're at the end of the shoot and principal photography ended on February 21st, 2014. And they had reshoots in mid-October, 2014. So that's really, that's a wrap on the, on the filming of it. And I think for Sam Taylor Johnson, I think, like, she worked really well with the actors. I think that's really important. She worked well with the actors. She worked well with the crew. And they just made the film that they did not intend. They, it was not the film that they intended to make because of E.L. James, which I think is really unfortunate. But, but it's a very competently made film. You know, I think she did the best she could. Yeah. No, I, I think everyone did. Like, in Twilight's, a, I think, a little like this, too. I know Twilight's very maligned in this movie is as well. But again, I think the writing on both movies is is weak. But the craftsmanship is really strong. Like, Twilight looks great. It's no surprise that all four of these actors, Kristen Bell, Robert Pattinson, Dakota Johnson, and... Jamie Dornan have gone on to have wonderfully interesting careers. Chris, you got to retake it. Exceptional actors. Yes. You got to retake it because that one reviewer or commenter is going to be mad that you just said Kristen Bell and not Kristen Stewart. No, I said Kristen Bell for a reason. <laughs> uh, yeah, Kristen Stewart. Keep it in. Yes, Kristen Stewart, obviously. Sorry. Now my night is ruined. So. Getting to the premiere and the box office and the critical reception, the film premiered at the Berlin Film Festival. Okay. Surprise, surprise. I don't think anyone was expecting it to premiere at the Berlin Film Festival, but it did. So it premiered Hmm. on February 11th, 2015, with a theatrical release on February 13th, 2015. And it was put together on a budget of $40 million, and it opened to $85 million on Valentine's Day weekend. shit. There you go. Yep. Fifth largest ever for an R-rated film, and it did three times as much business overseas. And despite being, this is like despite being, not being released in China and banned in several countries. <laughs> wow. Wow. So what do you guys think the total box office was? It did. 300 million? Was 85 domestic the first weekend? 85 or? million, I think, was domestic. In the first weekend. In the first uh, weekend. I'm going up. I think- I'm going 500 million worldwide. I don't know, 550, 550, 600? Very close. Very, yeah. It was 571 million worldwide. Wow. And it, 
Yeah. And it became the third highest grossing film directed by a woman and the highest grossing opening weekend for a female director, which was later surpassed by Patty Jenkins for Wonder Woman. Despite being critically panned with one reviewer saying Fifty Shades of Grey, the movie for the record is not quite as bad as Fifty Shades of Grey, the book, but that's not saying (laughs) much. And the first film earning a Rotten Tomato score of 24%. And the sequels even lower at 11%, the entire franchise earned over a billion dollars. Wow. And what? it even received an Academy Award nomination. Original song? For best original. Yep, for best original That's song. That's the category. That's the Which category one? that you got to go for. Earned it by the weekend. Oh, the oh, weekend. Really? That's right. That was for this. Wow. That's yeah. crazy. And as a rated R film, that means it's like. The highest grossing R films are like The Exorcist, Ted, weirdly, that comedy. Uh, so anyway, my point is it's it, there are very few rated R movies that yeah. gross that much money. Yeah. You just you can't do it. That's an insane accomplishment. It's Good job, everybody. Wild. Good <laughs> yeah. job. Well, and I really hope that Sam Taylor Johnson got points on the back end. Yeah, because seriously. That made enough money that maybe she could have gotten paid. Oh out no, a did bit, she but. not? Well, not sure about that, but oh, no. Sam Taylor Johnson and Kelly Marcel, despite the success, the box office success of the first film, were not brought back for the remaining two films in their respective positions. Didn't that happen to Catherine Hardwick on yep. Twilight yes, as it well? Did. Sure it did. There's yep. another Ugh. and like Catherine wow. Hardwick also both of them were replaced by men. So James Foley directed the final two films. He directed right. House of Cards um, yeah. for Netflix. And E.L. James' husband, Neil Leonard, wrote the screenplays. Wow. Yeah. And that's E.L. How, that's James... That's how you cut your IMDb I take it all half, back. by the way. Yeah. Your, yeah. Uh, yeah. Rotten Tomato score. I take my uh, I take my defense of E.L. James back, and I I'll do a slow clap for Sam Taylor Johnson. Yeah, you're that gonna take sucks. this back even more, Lizzie. After I say what E.L. James said of the experience, and she said, "I had a far more creative process on the second and third movie, working with someone who had vision and dynamism and embraced the material." Fuck, which is a low you, lady, low blow. <laughs> because wow, if there was anything that Sam Taylor Johnson lacked, it was not vision. No. Also, I've seen the other ones. They are unbelievably boring and bad, like unwatchable. Unwatchable. This movie I don't even is think I saw at the least third one. Watchable. The second one was unwatchable, but somehow I saw it yes. twice. Um, <laughs> so while E.L. James was able to return and enjoy the creative process, Taylor Johnson was back to right where she started before she took this film, and she didn't get any offers after directing a massive box office success. And she's been really outspoken about her situation and you know, saying that in a recent interview, she's like, I've done a short film, I've done an indie, I've done a blockbuster, I've done a TV show, I've just now done an extreme small budget, I'm experienced across the board, I've shown I'm capable, but I'm still far down the list. And she hasn't seen the remaining two films, but she doesn't regret making the first, saying at the end of the day she was proud of what they made, which they've all said that, but she would also be mad for ever wanting to do it again. Wow. Yeah. And for Dakota Johnson and Jamie Dornan, you know, we spoke about this already, but like the franchise really could have made or broken their careers. And luckily it made their careers and they're able to make the films they want to make because they carried such a massive franchise. And they've both been pretty open about their experiences now. And Dakota Johnson refers to the franchise as those big naked movies. (laughs) 
And when she was asked if she regretted making the film, she said, no, I don't think it's a matter of regret. If I had known at the time that's what it was going to be like, I don't think anyone would have done it. It would have been like, oh, this is psychotic. But no, I don't regret it. Of course not. Like, I get it. I get why you would sign up for this 100%. As an actor, as a director, like, everybody that came on board, it makes sense. Like, Mm -hmm. whether it was someone like Patrick Marber who saw an opportunity here to, you know, potentially make something more artful out of something, some not-so-artful source material, or these young actors who were, this is an incredible platform. Like, there's, there's... I get it. I get why they all said yes. I have, there's no yeah. shame in taking this. Yeah, part. there's no there's no shame in it. And Jamie and Jamie Jordan went into the franchise knowing that the films were going to be critically panned because the book was critically panned. Yeah. And but as opposed to Dakota Johnson, whose performance was praised at least in the first film and came out like relatively unscathed, his performance didn't fare as well with critics. And he's you know still to this day having to prove himself and. You know, there's always, like, lines in the press saying, like, it's the best thing he's done since Fifty Shades. And he has, a good, I think, like, a good mentality about it because it lights a fire under him. If it means people saying, oh, he's actually not that bad, well, so be it. So It's Aww. unfair, too, because I agree Dakota Johnson is great in this, but he is given nothing. Yeah. Like, she at least has a character to start with. Yes. I still don't understand. I don't know what his business is. I don't know what oh, he yeah, does all day. I don't it. understand anything about his character. He is given absurd lines that at points he's delivering to an unconscious body when he just t- decides to tell her that his mother was a prostitute and a crack addict. And then she's just like, hmm. And I'm like, oh my God, <laughs> she's been asleep this whole time. What is happening? Um, I, he, I, again, I, I don't, I think so everyone would flounder in that yeah. role. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I don't know what you do. I actually think that's kind of why Ryan Gosling would be good for it. Because if you look at something like Drive or Only God Forgives, the Wending Refn movies he's done, he does, he has no character. Like everyone's like, I'm that Drive guy's like, that's such an interesting character. (laughs) That character thinks nothing throughout the whole movie. And he's, but he makes it interesting. Um, Because he's very, he's an interesting looking person. But it requires some clout to like have the confidence to do that. And there's Mm -hmm. no reason Jamie Dornan would have come into this with that. Um, And if you're just set up to fail, because like I feel like so many guys are going to be insecure and hate him for, you know, being the sex symbol. And when he's, you know, it's hard to accept that male sex symbol, I think, for a lot of uh, straight fans of, you know, movies and whatnot. And then, I'm sure a lot of the establishment folks are not going to like him because he's this unproven guy coming in. And and I don't know, it just it's hard to animate that type of dialogue in any sort yeah, of way. It's really so challenging. Just, he had a and he had a lot riding on it, taking that role. And he. Yeah. He and he knew that he did. And yes. he I think he I think he did the best he could with the material. Oh yeah. Oh absolutely. I think so and I think some and he also got was a new father. He was he his Aww. wife gave birth to their first child two days before they started filming. So he was also <laughs> doing this no. major film and also he deserves had an a newborn. award for this movie <laughs> because honestly we just had a baby a year ago. And the last things I feel right now are sexy and <laughs> capable of pulling off an accent. And so uh all the credit in the world to Jamie Jordan. Truly, truly. So I think this brings us to our what went right, guys. I mean, I guess I'll say I'll say Dakota Johnson. I've already said it. I I think she's really great. I think she 
brings some levity to this movie that is completely devoid from the book. There is like the character in the book is so boring and the whole thing is so boring. You're really just skipping through to the next sex scene, which is probably why it's 80% sex scenes. Um, But yeah, she's great. She's funny. She's sweet. uh, She's believable in a story that's completely unbelievable. Um, I really like her and I would like to see her doing more and more interesting stuff. So I will say Dakota Johnson and body hair. I appreciated that there was some body hair in this. Even though she may have been making the right decisions for the ultimate financial success of the movie because the movie was financially successful and I can't argue with that and I've never made anything financially (laughs) successful. So, uh, but I will say Everything went right except for E.L. James on this movie. Yeah. The movie looks great. It sounds great. The actors do overall a really great job because uh, you mentioned that the contract scene, Jamie Dornan's great in that scene. Yeah. So when he has the right material, like he can mm-hmm. be great. The direction is great and none of it makes sense. And that ultimately comes down to the script. Yeah. And that's not a slight at the screenwriters that were hired. I am specifically calling out the nonsensical nature of this story written by E.L. James. And again, she very well may be right that the financial success of the movie hinged on those decisions. I can't argue with that. But for me, watching it, I was surprised when I, while I watched it, I was like, everyone here is doing such a good job. It was almost like watching a weird, like, SNL parody parody where they, you know what I mean? Like, took the ultimate production value to, like, the terrible idea, that sort of thing. So kudos to everyone for getting through it and doing a great job. And it didn't feel like anyone was phoning it in either. And that's very impressive. Naomi? Yeah, I I think my went right would be Dakota Johnson and Sam Tyler Johnson. I think they they made a great team. They flushed out Anastasia's character to have a backbone and be sassy and have some control and be autonomous. Um, And I think sometimes that like fought with the script that E.L. James wanted. And I think like there's some there are some things where I was like, oh, this is kind of fighting the text, but I like a lot of the choices that she has made with the character. So I think that Sam Taylor Johnson saved the film, even though she wasn't able to make the film she wanted to make. And Dakota Johnson, like this gave us Dakota Johnson. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think she's great. So more work for Sam Taylor Johnson. Hire her. Hire her. She's great. Actors love her. Everyone, crew loves her. Everyone loves working with Sam Taylor Johnson. Please give her more jobs. I sat next to her (laughs) once at a restaurant. She was very nice. See? And she's a nice restaurant patron. And her husband's very handsome, who was also Mm -hmm. there. Aaron Taylor Johnson. I was like, you, sir, look great. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to scooch in the other direction, so we're not in the same frame. Well, thank you, Naomi. This was an excellent deep dive into uh, Fifty Shades of Grey. I never want to hear about it or watch it again. Um, Neither Very do I. much appreciated. <laughs> uh, and again, Naomi is an actor and producer, and you'll be able to check out her short film, Epinephrine, soon. Is that right? Yeah, we'll be shooting, hopefully, in March of 2023. Oh. Which is very exciting. Amazing. And guys, as always, please leave us a rating and review. Tell your friends about us. Yes. Tell your family about us. Tell strangers about us. If you're making out with a billionaire in an elevator and some businessmen awkwardly come after you, tell them. Really quickly, a couple reviews I wanted to call out. Baby Condor, when wrong went right, I love this podcast so much. It got me and my husband through the pandemic. 
saving marriages. Wow. One marriage at a time. Keep them coming. Guys, please leave us a rating and review and tell everyone about us. Thank you. That's it. Until next time. Bye. Bye. Thanks for having me. What Went Wrong is a Sad Boom podcast presented by Lizzie Bassett and Chris Winterbauer. Editing and music by David Bowman with cover art from Uthana Uos. 